This is Justin Smith of Palmetto Coast Exotics. And this is Jacob Bratz with JLB Morelia, and you are listening to the Herpeticulture Podcast. I mean, we're good. We're good. We're good. I'm gonna pull it up on my phone right here. Oh, we're not good. We're not good. Put my phone on vibrate. Okay. Let's see here. This is episode 56 of the Herpeticulture Podcast. Justin Smith of Palmetto Coast Exotics. Jacob Brotz, J.O.B. Morelia. And it is time before we have Mr. Jack Vicente on of Agritoxins to talk about coral snakes. We have our Nido question of the week. And so, the question is, does the Nido found in colubrids or other groups have the same symptoms as in pythons? If not, what's different? And Dr. Susan tells us, just in case few of you are new to our Q&A session on Nidovirus, Nidovirus is an RNA virus that causes respiratory disease in snakes. Different strains of the virus have also been found in humans, mammals, birds, fish, and insects. In general, many of the viruses classified within the nidovirals cause respiratory disease. However, there's a wide variation in clinical presentation between host species and viral strains. Strains. Strange. Strange. We are finding that many snake species test positive for the virus but do not show clinical signs at all, whereas many species in the python family seem to show severe clinical signs or even acute mortality. <clears throat> the variation in presentation could be due to a multitude of reasons, including the host's immune response, ability of the virus to cause disease, or compounding stressors such as suboptimal temperatures and humidity. In general, if an animal presents with nidovirus and has clinical disease due to the virus, respiratory signs will be seen, like the excess mucus in the oral cavity, the coena, the bubble blowing <clears throat> from the nose, Increased respiratory rate, abnormal posture, shedding issues, etc. In some snakes, there will be no signs of disease. These animals have the potential to pass the virus to other hosts that were that are more susceptible. Similar to the story of Typhoid Mary, where Mary was sick but wasn't showing signs of sickness. Instead, she continued to interact with people and they, ha- they started getting disease from her. In the case of colubrids, it appears that clinical disease is uncommon and the strains observed may be limited to this species. However... A low number of colubrids have been tested for the virus, and more data is needed to see if they also get significant clinical disease. Uh, Another point to bring up is that some of the viral strains are host-specific. That means they can only infect one host species. We are still in the beginning stages of learning about this virus in reptiles, and much work needs to be done to understand the ability of the virus to cause disease in different species. With that said, testing, quarantine, strict biosecurity protocols, and excellent husbandry are the best methods to prevent spread in your collection. Check out our new publication from Dr. Hoon Hanks, <coughs> Fish Egg Diagnostics Team, and several other world-renowned researchers on nidovirus in captive collections to learn more about new species being found and clinical signs associated with the virus. And we will post this link that shows that paper on the Facebook page. So check it out. I think I did all right on that one. <laughs> you weren't breathing very much. Oxygen's for <laughs> wimps and quitters. Uh, this is almost like dead on time though, because Vicente is supposed to call at eight forty-five. 
Side note, did you keep any of those cards we sent the Tinley? No, but I need some now. <laughs> so uh, the guys at Terra Orb said they'd take them with them to shows. James Lewis took some. He said he'll take some to shows. Mm-hmm. I think Cox still has some. Billy still has some. And so I told him, I was like, if it's a problem, feel free to send them back because I need some. And I don't really want to order more when there's already a good bit floating out there that aren't needed. Yeah. <clears throat> so. Yeah, I could use some of that. I'll get more printed tomorrow. How many do you need? I don't know how many snakes I have. Are you doing all of them? I thought you already had some. I do, but they were for the babies. Oh, okay. Need to update. I don't know. I do like those cards. You know, with all the apps and stuff, like those are really convenient, but even when I was using Track My Reptile, it, uh,. I still just found myself using pen and papers just faster. I didn't have to scroll through stuff. Yeah. You know, like Reptile, reptile Scanner or whatever it's called has the QR codes that you can boop, 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 brings it right up. But to me, it's just like, I just want to write it down. I'm old-fashioned. Yeah. Pen and paper. Yeah, I'm the same way. I tried to get onto the uh, the app train, and I, I don't know. I just I like into it. I like the apps for um, keeping uh, lineage stuff just mm-hmm. so it's easy to send somebody that but as far as like <clears throat> feeding and things like that yeah i like definitely I like to write it hard hard copy always and shout out real quick on a side note to terry burwell for the rhino rat snake that i received from him that snake is awesome very cool it's a very cool snake it bit me it was great <laughs> wasn't happy about the trip wasn't very pleased with me that little little jaya from riley too now that he's got some energy and some food in him <laughs> he's like He's, he he's ready world, to go. <laughs> he's ready. That's awesome. But everything's finally kind of slowing down a little bit. We're still waiting on the house. We're supposed to close on that like the 25th. We're still waiting to hear back from the USDA about the loan and everything. Um, then I can move everything again. And I'm thinking I'm going to see if me and the pops can make one of these for all these bears behind me. Yeah. I just the room that I'm gonna have to put them all in isn't huge, so I want to be more efficient with the space as much as right. I can. But I don't know. I mean, my dad built these, and I think he—I don't know—no, he didn't build that one. But these ones he did yeah. does a pretty good job with it. Some of them are kind of tight. It's just like any rack. Some are really tight. Some are really loose. Like I've yet to find a. I don't know if you've yeah, you like should, what your experience no, you is. Tr- you should try my Reptile Basics rack. Because most of the racks that I've used are like you either gotta like if you yank it the water and the snake come flying out because it's like so snug yeah or like because you're pulling on it so hard <laughs> or that you have to put like the pieces of paper on it because they'll just right. slide like a slight breeze will come by and <laughs> the, the drawer the will just come out yeah. yeah no dude you should try my reptile basics ones man they slide in and out perfectly and they're not they're not too loose not too snug mm-hmm. they're they're great i just don't like heat tape man i hate flex watt the variation within it all is just frustrating well, what are they what do they use in the racks? Flex what? You, it's just, you it, don't like having to deal with it yourself. No, it's just all flex watt that I've dealt with, except in my CB70 rack, has, there's just so much of a fluctuation. Like, in, like I'll mess with the probe and figure out where I need to set my temperature, and I'll set it to my desired temp. And then, like, up top will read inside the enclosure, like, 81 degrees, and that's too cold. And then down belief, it down below, it's like 90-something. Well, you had those, that weird one that had it, like, the floating, 
Remember that one you had that you got rid of that had that floating pad? Yeah, I didn't like that crap. That was just... I was like, that completely defeats the point of having yeah. bottom heat. Like, yeah. if there's a gap under it, all that heat just this dissipates. Escapes. Yeah, it was it was a little silly. But, uh, <clears throat> no, I sold that. But, yeah, the Reptile Basics, man, it's a good rack. It, it would work well for Colubrids if you can figure out the better temps. But for more exact... Or at least for the exact temperatures that I like for my stuff. Game on. Let's go. Hello? What's going on? Hey, buddy, how are you? How are you? Good, good. Can you hear me okay? I can hear you good. How about uh, on the other end, okay? Yeah, sounding pretty good. Can you hear me all right? This is Jacob. Can you can you hear Jake okay? Jacob? Can you hear me at all? Yeah, I can hear you good. Okay, okay great. Cool. We okay. got we got new new microphone wires, so we're making sure like they're better than the last yeah. ones. Yeah. I, hey, I need all the help I can. I'm sitting here with hearing aids on. <laughs> um, so we are currently recording. Um, okay. I can, you know, this isn't live or anything like that, so if there's anything that needs to be cut out or anything like that, it's no big deal. Um, but, I mean, if you're ready, then we can jump right into it. Sure, I'm ready. Let's give it a cool. shot here. All right. So, like we said at the beginning of the episode, we're joined by Mr. Jack Vicente of uh, agrotoxins and uh we're gonna talk some coral snakes which i'm super excited about that's probably my favorite native species at least of venomous uh and it's not every day you have people that actually do stuff on a larger scale with them because they're, they have a pretty hardcore reputation for being not easy snakes to keep alive mostly because of the diet um but we'll uh let me pull up my my notes here i'm so he's ready to roll, not man. Ready. Well, that's <clears throat> exactly the opposite of what I just said. So, yeah. <laughs> thanks for uh, proving me wrong. Uh, so uh, we'll do the usual, like we do every episode. Give us kind of you know, some background on yourself, there, Jack, and uh, <clears throat> what you do currently. And I know you have a, a pretty long history in in the reptile world. Okay, I'll, I'll go back and do the best I can here with uh, with numbers and uh, dates. Okay. But, uh, just probably like about everybody else that's passionate about reptiles, whether they do venom work or they're keepers or hobbyists or in it for a profession. It started at an early age. I was six or seven years old, and a uh, family got a dog and found out I was allergic to the dog. So they got rid of the dog after about three months and replaced it with a, a turtle, uh, a little turtle in an, in an uh, oval little plastic uh aquarium type thing with a little palm tree in the middle and then yeah. my, my dad bought me some books on you know how to take care of it and fortunately in those books it was not just a turtle it was reptiles and i began to look at uh you know what to do with a turtle and i got way more interested in the snakes so mm-hmm. kept the turtle um and a bunch of the kids in the neighborhood we decided we were going to go snake hunting and get into it that way and that was the early, the early start of my uh, my interest in reptiles, particularly in snakes. And then, being from Miami, uh, living in Hialeah, growing up, uh, of course we had Bill Haas to look up to. We always heard about what he was doing. He was on the news with his bites, and you know, my uh, uncle and my dad would take me down there on weekends occasionally when I could talk them into it to go see the show and see the snakes. And uh, that that just sparked all my interest in the snakes. And then when I was about 14, I started riding my bike over to a place called Animated Gift Shippers in Hialeah. They were uh, importers of monkeys and 
all types of reptiles, uh, mostly from South America, anacondas, boas, uh, that type of thing, uh, and, and a few venomous occasionally, but not many, uh, but that started another interest in exotic snakes, if you will. So one thing led to another, and then I studied it in school, skipped a lot of schools, uh, went to the zoo, um, went to the aquarium, uh, went to the serpentarium, then I got my driver's license, and I applied for a job at the Miami Serpentarium uh, on weekends because I was still in high school and was fortunate enough to get that. And then when I graduated from high school, uh, I actually went to work for the uh, Southern Bell at that point, but always wanted to work at the Serpentarium and finally did all I could do and quit Southern Bell, went to work for the Miami Serpentarium full time. And in 1967, met George Van Horn because he came to work at the Miami Serpentarium with Bill mm-hmm. Austin. Uh, we became very good friends, found out our dads were mailmen and knew each other forever. Um, so we started making plans. Uh, George was going to Costa Rica, catching snakes and bringing them back, and I was selling them. I was trading snakes in Australia uh, from here uh, and bringing in a lot of exotic stuff. Uh, and then started doing my own venom production in the backyard on a picnic table with wine glasses oh. uh, we had king cobras we had fertile ants we had we had a lot of good stuff uh and bill haas was uh you know told me how to do it uh they wouldn't he would you couldn't do it there with him because you know you had to go do this on your own uh collective venom you know put it in the refrigerator right away and bring it to him the very next day or the same day would be better and he was giving us i think about 25 cents an ounce for it but <laughs> <laughs> anyway, it sparked, it sparked interest. It was it was a lot of fun, and that was the start of you know what I wanted to do in life. And uh, found out real quick that it's a very hard business to be in and and put food on the table. So you know, as things progressed, uh, George and I decided that we were going to build a serpentarium. And we looked in Miami, we looked at Hialeah, we looked in South Miami, we looked out on a 20-mile bend, uh, and we just could never really find land that was anywhere near affordable. Right. So uh, we came up here to St. Cloud in 1970, and we started looking around. And did, we, it was rumored that Disney might come here, um, and we thought, wow, but we're going to get on this road Highway 192 between Disney and, and the beach, and maybe that we could get to capture all that Disney traffic that would be going between Disney and the beach, because we figured if people are going to come to Florida and do Disney, they're probably going to want to go to the beach. Well, as it turned out, that, that wasn't true. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but we uh, anyway, we, we found a, a real estate guy, and he told us, look, if I can't find you guys a piece of property, I'll sell you five acres of my farm here right on the highway. So that's what he did. We bought it. Uh, we started there in a little wooden, uh, his little wooden barn, about a 10 by 10 with a metal roof. And we were bringing in, we had crates. Uh, we had uh, Siamese cobras. Uh, actually, back then, we called them uh, Siamese cobras. or Nyakuthia today. Used to, used to be Nya Siamensis in mm-hmm. the 60s. And we found out that they were, they were going to cook in this building because it had no air, it had no electric, so he did let us run a hose over there. We ran a sprinkler on a tin roof all day, and that kept the temperature bearable. And then we progressed from that into a trailer, uh, and then I was working with Southern Bell. I transferred up here. George uh, had to get a, a job drilling wells to, to, to eat, and um, 
But anyway, we talked through it and we opened up the uh, the Snake Farm. Reptile World Serpentarium, Biotoxins Incorporated, and, and <clears throat> over the course of 1973 or 4 up until maybe 80, uh, we worked with Bill Haas with a lot of things. In fact, uh, at one point we thought we were going to merge. He would come up here and we would have discussions and we had figured out, you know, ways to do it. And uh, it just never really worked out, but we came close and uh, and stayed stayed on a great relationship with him until uh, he was, was gone. And, you know, went through the deal. We went out to visit with him in Salt Lake City several times uh, when he moved out there, and then he came back here to Punta Gorda, and, uh, and, and he was he was a great uh, a great mentor in many ways. Yeah, I don't think I've ever heard a bad thing about him. No, no, he 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 was uh, he was he was not. People think he was a great snake guy and a great uh, venom guy, and he was. But but his his visions and his knowledge went way beyond that. He he was an entrepreneur. He was an inventor. Mm-hmm. Uh, the guy was uh, when you get away from just you know what we do with the snakes and the venoms. Uh, he was an amazing person. Uh, I've never met another human like him in my life. So anyway, things went you know went going good, and uh, we opened up to the public. And I was thinking I could quit and go there full time. I would get there at four in the morning to work the exhibits. Uh, we do venom extractions on the weekends, uh, and then. George got to where it would support him. It never got to where it would support me too. I had a wife and two kids, and uh, we just—it uh, was tough. Um, yeah. Nobody wants to buy your venom, you know, when you're new. Uh, you know, they see the price on venoms and think it's great, and what people don't realize is you can't sell all you produce, and most researchers want milligrams, very small quantities. Uh, the only people you're going to really make any money and be able to survive is the anti-venom producers, and there's only three of them. Mm-hmm. So, you know, we didn't have any of that. Uh, Bill Haas had it all. So that, that got us through into, you know, the 90s, 92. About 94, uh, I was doing a, a lot better at, uh, at the telecommunications end of the business than I was the venom business. And my job started making me travel uh, out of town about five days a week. And so, so unfortunately, I couldn't do much down there, so I had to take a little hiatus from that. Uh, and stayed vice president until the late 90s, uh, and then, you know, was doing my own projects. Uh, and, and I got really interested in toxinology, not just the venom production part yeah. of it. Uh, and did a lot of reading and, and developed some good contacts. Uh, and then in 2007, uh, you know, the thing with the coral snake anti-venom, I'll just give you a, a, a little background on that. Uh, yeah, because it's been kind of an odd history. It's a very odd history. Yeah. You know, in, in, 19, uh, in 1967, Wyeth came out with the first coral snake anti-venom. Uh, I had a coral snake bite in 66, and Bill Haas left uh, 20 cc's out under the cobra for me to come get that night, uh, and I injected intramuscular in both legs, uh, and I had some issues, but I made it, uh, and it, I did a hospital, and Ben Shepard treated that one, but in 2003, Wyeth stopped making the antivenom, mm-hmm. so those lots of antivenom expired uh, uh, in 2008, that was, that was the last, as they turned them up and did it, uh, what expired in 2008, it kept getting 
FDA approved every year, one year at a time. You can use this lot number for 12 months, and then the next year they this just keep lot punting number it. for 12. Yeah. Yeah. So uh, as it turns out, Pfizer Pharmaceutical bought Wyatt. Mm -hmm. And uh, I don't know the dealings, but for whatever reason, Pfizer decided that they were going to make a coral snake antivirus. And they uh, got permission with the FDA as long as they used Wyatt's exact pr pr protocol, which meant they didn't have to go through cr uh, clinical trials. They could just go with it. Mm -hmm. So <clears throat> anyway, they, uh, they were about to contact us uh, in 2009 to start to see if we could produce that, the, the venom for that project. Mm -hmm. So now I'll, I'll regress back a little bit. You know, in the early days, there was there was a big wall between uh, people that collected venom like Bill Haas and Ross Allen and the zoo people because those people at that point looked upon the venom collectors as uh, brutal, brutal people. They put cages in dark boxes, uh, snakes in dark boxes. They didn't use cages. They didn't set them up, you know, where the snakes were comfortable with hide boxes, with, with foliage, with just, you know, beautiful exhibit mm. type stuff. And, and, and that, that followed us uh, probably up until maybe the mid to late 70s. And then, then the industry started to take a turn where there was, uh, there was some stuff being done with, uh, with venoms and medicine. Uh, and then people realized you needed to collect the venom to make the anti-venom. And it, venom producers went from uh, being an underdog, if you will, in, 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 her, in, her, in her world, uh, to gain a little bit of respect. So that's a piece of history I don't think a lot of people uh, remember because mm -hmm. it really wasn't pronounced unless you were in the venom world and, and were feeling that from the other side. Uh, and so that is completely turned around by now. But before Pfizer uh, stepped into this, uh, at, at a Venom Week meeting, uh, sat down with Dr. Leslie Boyer, and she had this idea. She wanted to make a coral snake antivenom. Mm -hmm. And she <clears throat> enlisted me to help her. Uh, <clears throat> we wanted to, of course, do it in Florida, uh, uh, use it in Florida. Uh, you know, coral snake uh, bites are, uh, they're few and far between. There's less than 100 a year right. in the whole United States. And probably, you know, the, if you looked at the poison control records, they're really skewed because poison control doesn't get every bite, but they get most of them, and most of those bites do occur in Florida, mm -hmm. uh, and 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 most of the bites are not dry bites, but are way sublethal bites with uh, with some issues, and we'll get into that later on, on when we talk about yeah. animation. But this project kicked up with Dr. Boyer, and. <clears throat> And she had got uh, the Viaclone folks in Mexico to make the antivenom for the trial. She went to the FDA. She got clinical approval. Everything was going to rock along good. And we actually uh, got uh, 99 vials delivered to the Tampa Poison Control Center in Tampa, Florida, uh, at Tampa General. And uh, I enlisted three other hospitals. We enlisted a hospital down in the Fort Myers area, one in the Port St. Lucie area. So that's east and west coast. And... Uh, and then one in the land. Uh, 
And so we had hospitals that were willing to take the, the antivenom and follow the protocol and do all the paperwork and do the follow-up, which really costs hospitals money. So you don't mm-hmm. get a lot of them that want to jump on it. And the day, uh, the day that was going to go public, uh, Dr. Cynthia Younger, who ran the Tampa Poison Control Center, the day before she was going to do the press release, uh, Leslie got a letter basically stating that uh, that venom, that, that antivenom you have is not fit for human uh, use. And that was because Viacom was going through some corporate strife yeah. and there was a separation. Uh, so as it turned out, we that was put on hold. And, and so in the meantime, we're still waiting on this Pfizer thing, what's going to happen. Uh, and then she got another uh, Mexican company to a very great company to make a great product. And we got it here, we got it going, and we had to get 50 bites. And at about the 25 or 35 uh, bite uh, mark in that history, then Pfizer announced that they were going to go ahead and produce this antivenom. Uh, they had contacted George Van Horn of Reptile World, and George got a hold of me. And the, the, the predicament was they wanted 100 grams of coral snake venom to start. That's a lot. That is so much. <laughs> that's, uh, that's like 10,000 bites. So, um, and George had been doing this, of course, a long time. Mm-hmm. And, you know, it's like, wow, number one, you can't get the snakes when you want them because people won't hunt them, even if you pay them, because they may or may not get them. you, you got to get coral snakes when people happen upon them. And the other problem was, you know, Pfizer uh, was not going to sink a whole bunch of money into putting all these snakes in one room and have uh, viral things come through and, and jeopardize the project. So we knew up front we probably had to establish several colonies. Yeah. Okay, well, <clears throat> going through this process, unfortunately, uh, the other antivenom that Dr. Boyer was working on uh, ran out of grant money, and, and she went ahead and cut it off. And I, that was a sad day for me because I really wish I, I'll tell you if she could have continued that and had the funding it would have been the best time I've been going because it was a, a fab two product uh, and we can talk more about that in detail yeah. when we get into venomation but it was a great thing but anyway that's the story of that other anti-venom that people thought was a rumor and they got confused so there were two at first okay, okay. So, so now that's done and now what we're doing now is we're trying to figure out how can we get enough coral snakes to produce this amount of venom and you know the little bit that we've dabbled with them in the past you know we've kept them uh, george had some on the line but it never it wasn't a selling it wasn't a big seller so you're not going to ramp up for it i mean you know plus they didn't do work with food they wouldn't eat uh if, if you took your time and you set them up properly and, and you kept the humidity right you could get them to feed on small rat snakes very easy it's a lot of work. And in the venom production uh, scene, you can't really take the time to do that with more than a dozen. Uh, you can't do that with hundreds. And we had calculated that we would need 300 snakes online to do this based on the literature that we were reading of, you know, the yields that, that people had said they yield, the venom yields. And that was based on one or two snakes here or there. So, so that data was a little skewed too. Yeah. 
So anyway, what we did is uh, I called on my friends in the utility companies and the, and the phone companies and the power companies, and I put out an email, and it went viral. Uh, we need coral snakes because we're going to provide a venom for the production of anti-venom. If anybody gets bitten, and here's my number, call me if you see a coral snake in your pool or in your garage or uh, if it's contained somehow. I've gotten them out of pools, barbecue pits, old vehicles, uh, underboards. Just uh, so for the first two years, uh, in 2008 and 9, I traveled from the Keys to Jacksonville to the Panhandle to get coral snakes. And some of those coral snakes, we had 150, 200 bucks in them, based on gas and time and everything. Mm -hmm. uh, <clears throat> so uh, as time went on. Uh, see, George uh, couldn't travel because he got a business to run. And at, at this point, I retired. So I could do that full time. And I built my own laboratory in the back of my five acres. And it's a private lab, it's not open to the public. Right. And I, I set it up specifically for coral snake production. And we were realizing, well, two of us ain't enough. We need a third person. And uh, George uh, got a hold of Carl Barton, who's a good friend of ours and, and, a, and a good business partner. And Carl, <clears throat> Carl got in on this. So, so we were able to establish three separate colonies of coral snakes right here in Central Florida, so we could supply enough venom for this anti-venom project. Yeah. And in fact, one of us did have a, uh, a virus come through and knock out about 60% of the uh, colony. So that did hit, hit us once, but it only hit us once and uh, we were able to recover from that. But see, George and Carl, with their tourist attractions, have coral snakes coming in the front door occasionally. Because, yeah. you know, even though people are not allowed to catch it, they bring them in, in garbage cans. And, and I, so me being a private guy, I didn't. Uh, but as it turned out, I was going full speed traveling and I got up well over a hundred and then I started sharing what I was getting with George and Carl and I still did that up until about a year ago when I got over a hundred uh, I would give my surplus to whichever one of them needed it and I would of course keep the big ones and get rid of the little ones and subsequently I have ended up with a colony of extremely Big yeah, I've seen some and, of the videos, and there there are some monsters. They're they're really really, and they're thriving. So uh, anyway, that's what we did to uh, establish the colony, and uh, we, you know, I thought, well, you know what? I remember in the '60s, I used to keep coral snakes, and I, and we, you know, back then we would feed them baby food. You know, uh, we would we would feeding baby food with a, with a syringe. Mm -hmm. uh, actually, just with an empty syringe with nothing on the end of it, just stick it in the mouth and put a little bit in. Uh, and we killed a few and we kept a few. And uh, so we developed a process uh, where we use a, a number 10 French catheter on the end of a 60 milliliter syringe and we mix up a formula and we can feed them. And I'm thinking, you know, it would really be great to get them to feed naturally. And I went down that road, but um, when you have 100 coral snakes, That's an expensive you, food you need bill. two to 300 feeder snakes a month. Oof. And the best deal I could find, uh, strictly uh, reptiles offered to get them to me at three bucks a piece, uh, which was a, a third of what they were selling them for. But let me tell you, number one, they couldn't supply that many. Number two, I couldn't afford it. Yeah. Uh, so the baby food was working, but but um, 
what we what we ran into. See, I do mine different uh, because I'm private, and George and Carl have to spread theirs out uh, to do uh, do them for the shows. You know, like, they'll do like six a day. Yeah. Uh, so you know they can do uh, 36 a week. Uh, so if you got 72 snakes, you know you you're doing them every two weeks. Well, here we are going, and Pfizer's need more and more and more venom, and we don't we're, we can't provide it. We're we, we're running behind. So we started uh, to do the snakes every five days, and of course that was met with uh, a lot of fatalities and a lot of problems. So then we went to ten days. We'll do them every ten days. Uh, we, we were doing five days, and then five days, and then feed every other. But what happens is you mess up the esophagus. It's it's hard on the animal. Even using every kind of lubricant you can, mm-hmm. that I, I tried every kind of lubricant you could imagine. I did all mine in one day, so I was able to mix up the formula, and I was able to do more experimentation with the formula of what we're feeding them, and I could get a better track because uh, because you know if you take just if you separate 50 snakes out and you feed them a formula, and then you take your other 50 and you feed them another formula, you can do a, you, you can really see what's going on. Mm-hmm. So uh, going through that process, uh, we found out that we just we needed more snakes. We couldn't, we couldn't do them uh, on short intervals. So <clears throat> we got to the two-week interval. That seemed to be good. That, was, that seemed to be a good maximum venom production. Snakes did fairly well. But they were losing weight, you know. Uh, so, okay, so they're losing weight, got to give them a little more baby food, because that's what the primary uh, ingredient was, was Gerber baby food number two, uh, chicken and gravy. And anybody that's keeping a coral snake, uh, and, and if they need to supplement, that's enough. Uh, if you can get it to eat some other snakes in between. But <clears throat> looking at some of the dietary requirements and dietary ingredients of, of some of the feeder snakes and stuff, um, I decided that I think they need more calcium. So mm-hmm. I started adding calcium to the diet, and then going through that, found out that you don't want to use calcium with phosphorus on snakes. It's got to be phosphorus-free or you get in trouble. Uh, and then somebody came up with an idea of using some of these uh, dog foods that are used on dogs and cats, like after they have surgery, that boost them up. It's, they're yeah, full yeah. of vitamins and and uh, I threw some of that in there, and then I started losing them. And found I, fortunately, I've got a lab here in Kissimmee State Lab, so they did a lot of necropsies for me. Mm-hmm. And I was burning the kidneys out. That stuff's too hot. Oh, okay. Uh, we use Vionate uh, as a mineral, you know, a, a supplemental mineral. Uh, uh, it's a, a pet formula you can buy online. Um, anyway, over the course of time, I, I was playing with mixing and matching and it took a couple of years. Uh, it, got, it was almost 2012 before I really fine-tuned the formula uh, to where they did well. <clears throat> and, and that's why most of the snakes I have now are here from 2012 and 13. Mm-hmm. Uh, sure. And they're doing great. And, and what my goal was was to get a formula that gave them enough growth nutrition that at 84 degrees ambient temperature, because that's the temperature I kept the lab at during the day, and drop it down to 80 at night in the summer, and drop it down even cooler than that and put them on heat strips in the winter, uh, 
I finally got a formula that I can do these snakes every 21 days, and they do well. They'll breed in captivity if you want to put them together. Uh, we don't do that because it's too hard on the females to get them back after they, they have the eggs to get them back on the dental line. Mm -hmm. uh, and the babies are just too darn hard. To, They're uh, tiny. Oh, it's, they are so you can, you small. Can do it. You can do it, yeah. It, but, it, you know, it's, it's, it's like it's, it's really, really time-consuming. We found one uh, one day here, and, I mean, that thing, like, I, it was oh, incredible yeah, just yeah. how small that snake was. So, anyway, the formula works, uh, and, and the, the snakes are thriving, and uh, so because of that, uh, I can do this formula. I have two ingredients, and I'm not sharing it yet because I think we're going to try to uh, maybe get, get it patented. Uh, we're, we're cautious of the competition, but anyway, uh, the, the formula works. Uh, they don't die. Uh, and it's got like six ingredients in it, and any one of those, any one of those uh, added ingredients, or three ingredients, if you get it uh, too much, it's detrimental. Yeah. So and it's just and you then, said it's like a, a a nephrotoxicity thing, or is it like well, stress well, plus that? It, uh, there's other things that happen too. Uh, they, uh, they can get too fat. They can get lipomas. Uh, they can do regurgitation. Uh, and of course, the worst thing you can have is a coral snake regurgitate baby food and get it in nasal passages because it dries like concrete. Yes. And unless you flush it out immediately with, you know, with, with a nasal flush and a mouth flush, uh, which you can do, uh, that snake will go into a shed cycle and try to get rid of it that way, and it, it creates a mess. Mm -hmm. um, but you know, that's kind of a, a snapshot of when I started to where I am today and we we're still producing for Pfizer and actually only last month did they start to put on the market the new anti-venom they have been putting the old anti-venom on the market for up until last month and and, mm -hmm. and nobody would buy it the hospitals won't buy it because it only had a one-year expiration date and if you ordered it in June it would December 31st, it was no good. Mm -hmm. And when you went back to them, they wouldn't replace it. You had to buy new. It was 5,500 a vial. It got up to 7,000 a vial at one point. This is re this is wholesale price to a hospital. And uh, <laughs> and I'm thinking, you know, what what are they doing with all of this venom? Because they have purchased enough venom to produce enough anti-venom for six universes. Mm -hmm. I mean. You know, if you look at the way uh, some of the other labs produce antivenom, they, they can produce, they could take 10 grams of coral snake venom and produce an, enough antivenom for, for all they would need in the southeast United States for three, three to five years. Wow. So, you know, and, and that, I, I know everybody wants to say, well, how much venom does it take to make a vial of antivenom? And of course, yeah, I, you can't answer that question because the venom is not what's in the anti-venom. The venom is an antigen used to immunize the host animal. Mm -hmm. With coral snakes, it's horses. Okay, that was one of the questions with, I wanted to ask. Yeah. Was what, what do they with, use? with the rattlesnakes, it's sheep. Mm -hmm. And and you know, based on the horse's weight, and it could take uh, it could take a period. A period of time from six months to seven to eight months to get that horse's, you know, tighter and hyper immunity up to a high level, 
and then you start drawing blood from the horse, of course. And you, uh, do we need to go into how antivenom is made? Uh, I mean, if you want to, the uh, like one of the things is maybe you can answer this, but as far as them determining what kind of serum they're going to be using, are they are they partial to like horses, furry lapids over dogs? Like for different families, do they use different no, different no, serums? No, 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 no. They're <clears throat> The, the reason horses came into play is, is because of their size. Right. And uh, you can get a lot of blood out of a horse, you know, mm-hmm. uh, uh, every 21 sense. days. And, and, you know, they, they bleed the horse and they put the red cells right back in. They just keep, they just keep the plasma, the serum. That's where the mm-hmm. antibodies are. And then they pull the antibodies out of there and, you know, spin them out and process them and, and cleave them depending on, you know, um, you know, there's three types of antivenoms, how they're made. And we have two types. Uh, we have all three types now in the United States. Uh, the coral snake, because it's Wyeth's old formula, is called a whole IgG, immunoglobulin G. <clears throat> what that means is when they pull out uh, the, I, the, the IgG molecule, uh, when you look at that, it, is, it looks like a Y. If you picture a Y in your head mm-hmm. with three fingers, and one of those fingers, um, let's, let's say there's three fragments. Okay, one of those fragments, one of those fingers, has everything you need in it to neutralize the toxin or the venom. The other two fingers, uh, you don't need. They have, they, they have, like, one of those fingers says I'm a horse or I'm a sheep, uh, and the other fingers has all kinds of other stuff in it that only cause antivenom <coughs> anaphylaxis, uh, antivenom sickness, serum sickness, all kinds of allergic reactions to these proteins being injected in the human that you don't need. That's the whole IgG, the whole the whole immunoglobulin G molecule. That's the way they make the coral snake antivenom <clears throat> today because they follow in Wyeth's very old formula. Mm-hmm. The newest antivenom, Crofab, is what they call a... a, 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 a F1 product. It's it's a fragmented antibody one, FAB1. And what that means is it only has the one finger in that whole Y configuration where all of the, the antigens and the neutralization, everything you need is in that. Therefore, Crofab is very clean. Uh, it doesn't, the serum sickness almost goes away. The reaction goes away. It's very, very safe. Okay, there's a third antivim that just came online <clears throat> called uh, Anavip, yep. and it's made by Beaclone, and it's available now in the United States for rattlesnakes. It is not indicated and not FDA-approved for water moxes or copperheads, good for rattlesnakes. It's called an FAB2 or a FAB2. It has only two of the, uh, the fingers of the Y, if you will. So it's got a little bit of uh, garbage in there that you might not want, but, but, but as it turns out, it's manageable. Mm-hmm. Okay, when you look at these three antivenoms, you can see that one one is all three fingers, one has two, one has one. Well, they weigh different molecular weights. The whole IgG molecule weighs 150 kilodaltons. That's the way they weight that type of molecule. The one with two weighs about 100 kilodaltons, and the crofab with one weighs 50 kilodaltons. So what does that mean? Well, that means when you inject a whole IgG antivenom into a human, the half-life in the body is way up there. It'll last days, and, and it stays in there. So it, 
as the anti-venom <clears throat> binds to the venom, it's doing its job all the time. The FAB2 stays in there not as long, but long enough to do the job. Right. The, F the FAB1, because it's a small molecule, it doesn't stay in there. It is so small, the kidneys, can, the renal system grabs it, and you secrete it out. So all that means is you have to know that so you don't dump 20 vials of antivenom into a person at one time and then sit back and watch. You could do that with, with a coral snake if you needed that much. But with a crofab, and now that everybody's getting trained and know how to use it, it works absolutely great and it's safe. And you, you start with a loading dose of like six vials, infuse that over about an hour, and then you do a drip or you add more and you watch the blood chemistry and you know to add more. And then as your body removes it, you put more in, and that's the way that goes, you know, down the thing. That's the difference in the three antivenoms that we have available in the United States today. Yep. Jake, and, uh, Jake can attest to that. It worked pretty well for an Aatrox bite. Yeah, I, uh, that's what I, I got. <laughs> Crofab for uh, for the Aatrox. Yeah. You, you well, Aatrox is in it. Uh, uh, Amavip is made with uh, Botrops Aatrox, Crotalus dorissus, uh, and I think it's Dorissus terrificus. Uh huh. Mm -hmm. Crofab is made with water moccasin, Eastern Diamondback, Western Diamondback, and Mojave. Huh. So it uh, it covers quite a bit, yeah. Um, yeah. And those, and course, I mean, that's that works as a polyvalent, right? So that'll cover. Yes. Like even if they're only using a handful of those species, it still seems yeah. to cover all their bases. Uh, yeah. Now I tell you, uh, there are a few snakes that it doesn't work uh, as good as it could, but it does work. It just takes more. Uh, the Southern Pacific, uh, the Crotalus organus helleri, mm -hmm. <clears throat> that venom has got a, uh, a small. Uh, a small molecular weight toxin that is sort of like the Mojave toxin. It's a, it is a neurotoxin or a muscular neurotoxin, <clears throat> and it's not neutralized as well. So those bites require more antivenom, a little more, a uh, little more. They're a little harder to treat. Yeah. Uh, the Crotalus molluscus, the blacktail, also has a little bit of that in it. And uh, <clears throat> actually, what we have found out uh, in the last five years is geographic venom variation is something that nobody ever considered in the early days. Uh, they figured, hey, if you got bit by a diamond, eastern diamondback, you're okay. It didn't matter where that snake Well, mm -hmm. eastern diamondback venom, there, or, or, there's two very different venoms in that snake, and people don't realize that. And fortunately, the crowfab people do, and they use venoms from two geographic locations for that snake to cover that problem. Mm -hmm. Because if you go north of the Suwannee River in Florida, up into Georgia and in South Carolina and the Carolinas, the venom of that snake has a, a, a neurotoxin. It's a small basic peptide um, that if you didn't have venom in, in the mix to immunize a sheep for that bite, you would be in trouble. The, the snakes in South Florida don't have it. And we're finding that's true in the canebrake or the timber in Florida, too. Mm -hmm. uh, there, we, uh, FSU did a great study, uh, Dr. Darren Rakita and group. Um, they got three timbers out of the Ocala National Forest, and right right in the same area, one had the, one had a little neurotoxin in it, and the other two didn't. I've, yeah. I've actually heard that about uh, the cane breaks around here. Yeah, we're, we we're right it. over the Georgia border. Like, we're in South Carolina, yep. right yeah. in the very bottom corner. And I've heard some, I heard 
people talking about how they mm-hmm. found uh, neurotoxins in the uh, Well, let me tell you here. about that. The best thing you can have for a cane break bite is, is a cell phone because if you're out by yourself and you get bit and it has that small basic peptide and that neuromuscular uh, the myotoxin in it, you know what's going to happen? Within 15 or 20 minutes, your legs could give out. You'll be you'll be awake, but you ain't gonna be able to walk. You're not gonna be able to get back to the car and get help. Whoa! Yeah, dang, get help. So, I didn't uh, know that, I think that could set in that. Quick. A lot of people, I think, underestimate timbers and cane breaks. Oh man. yeah, man! Oh, I know yeah, they're yeah. I know they're hot. There was talk oh, about the Marco Shea got. They laid out by one. There were there was talk about uh, the cane breaks around our area, especially. They people have said they're even hotter than um, than Easterns can be. Yeah, yeah, um, they can be. They so, sure can be. Yeah, that's crazy, man. I, I those are some of my favorite rattlesnakes, man. I mm-hmm. got to do quite yeah, a bit, that, quite yeah, a bit of I work with them. them on the plantation, and they are just oh, they're just especially so you pretty, get those man. pink ones. Yeah, well, I found oh, yeah, I found yeah. one that was a solid like five foot mm-hmm. animal, like it was huge, and she was just like just gorgeous, like blonde color, but she had mm-hmm. like the pinkish sides upper, and that, oh my god, blushing, yeah, so gorgeous, oh, man. I love yeah. cane breaks. Now, do they get? Do you see a, a difference as far as the regional variations in coral snake venom, or is it all fairly the same? No, no actually, uh, the, the way uh, the, the FSU boys came to me and said, hey, we see that you've got coral snakes from all over Florida. I had coral snakes from 28 counties, because remember, I was traveling to get them. Mm-hmm. I said, yeah, and I said, I need more. They said, well, we got a bunch, but they're all from here. And we just did a study on Eastern Diamondback uh, geographical difference. We'd love to do that. Uh, so I donated uh, about 10 milligrams uh, from every single county that I had. And uh, <clears throat> let's talk a little bit about coral snake bites now, and then and then I'll tell you yeah. how that ended up. When I was young and uh, and had that bite in the 60s, uh, I had pain. Um, and I had swelling mm-hmm. and I had been reading before that about these case histories of coral snake bites with no pain, no swelling. And, uh, if you look at those histories, you'll see that a lot of those with no pain and no swelling, nothing ever happened. So then you have to question, did the person get any venom at all or, or, or not enough to do an issue? Well, I know I got venom because I felt it and it swelled and I took the anti-venom because, and Bouton-Ton, by the way, it worked. So uh, as time went on, I always had this feeling that I'm wondering if the venom's different mm-hmm. because you can, you can do case histories and even a lot of the cases I've been on still today, actually in reality today, most of them have pain and, and, and some have swelling, but pain is pretty prominent, even even with a minute amount of them. Well, Darren, uh, Dr. Rakita, they tested all of the venoms from, uh, even in the Carolinas, I had snakes from there. The eastern coral snake venom is extremely consistent. There is no geographical variation. So, <clears throat> then you start to wonder, well, what's going on with this? Because one of the case histories the kid had no pain, no swelling, and in 12 hours, he walks into the house. He tells his mother he's playing with his snake. It bit him, but it didn't hurt him. And he got droopy eyelids, bulbar, you know, bulbar paralysis, where the speech, the swallowing, the eyelids, mm-hmm. the ptosis, um, and she didn't know what to do. She took him to the hospital. 18 hour, at the 18-hour mark, that boy died. Wow. Uh, 
So Jeez. this brings up a very, uh, very touchy subject because, you know, kids are, they, they love these things. They're like candy canes. And fortunately, sure. they don't bite hardly at all. You can play with a coral snake, and if you don't pinch it or, or grab it or, or restrain it, it's probably not going to bite you. The Easterns are very, very forgiving. The Westerns are not. I've heard the westerns are a little more psychotic. <laughs> the, the, the westerns are a little more bitey. Yeah. Sounds like the uh, uh, di- so, Diamondbacks yeah. too. <laughs> yeah. So 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 uh, so while Darren and uh, and Al were looking at this venom, uh, they did some really great high um, high pressure uh, studies, uh, high pressure chromatography. Uh, they they and, and they they discovered there are thirty eight unique toxins in coral snake venom. Eastern. Most of these toxins are what they call a PLA2, phospholipase A2 toxin. Uh, and those PLA2s are in large volume. Uh, the coral snake has 11 three-finger toxins, which are the cobra mamba toxins, the, the highly neurotoxic toxins. And they, it's got L-amino acid oxidase, which that's what gives snake venom its color. It, it's it, if the venom has that in it, it'll be yellow. If it don't, it'll be white. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it's got it's got a little bit of snake venom uh, metalloproteinase, uh, and that's where you get a little bit of swelling, and that's where you get a little bit of blood in the kidneys. It's very very small amount, but it's in there. Mm-hmm. So, as we're looking at these toxins, uh, and then we look at the toxins in the western coral snake, uh, the Texas coral snake, Microsis tenor. It's different. They're different. There is definitely a geographical difference in those two venoms. And uh, I begin to, I was getting concerned because Pfizer is using only Eastern. They're not using both. Uh, so when you go back and you study the toxinology, uh, Dr. San, Sanchez, Elder Sanchez, out in Texas and Kings, Kingsville, she did a great paper. And she did toxicity studies. The eastern coral snake is 2.3 times more toxic than the than the Texas coral snake. Uh, and then a great paper came out, and it showed that the eastern coral snake, one of the PLA2s in it, is presynaptic. Now, what that means is this, and this, by the way, is the only venom in North America that has a presynaptic toxin. Mm-hmm. And if you kind of look at, in your mind, uh, the nerve and the muscle, and if your left hand is a nerve and your right hand is a muscle, and you put your fingers together, the nerve is sending impulses to your left hand and your right hand, telling the muscle how to move. Right. Okay? And, and it, it crosses a synapse, which is a synaptic gap, which uh, has a chemical called acetylcholine in it, and that's a conductor of the of the electric electric, electric message, if you will, mm-hmm. to make it simple. Well, <clears throat> most all of the neuro all of the toxins and venoms in North America are postsynaptic. They're happening over there on your right hand, on the receiving end. Right. And, okay. So when uh, when that when that toxin binds to that site. It shuts it down, and if that happens to be a muscle or a leg or uh, or your diaphragm, those muscles stop working. Well, as soon as the antivenom enters the system, it binds to that toxin, and it releases it from the postsynaptic site, and things start working. Mm-hmm. 
However, when you have a presynaptic toxin like is found in the eastern coral snake and the crates, the antivenom will not release the toxin once it binds. If the antivenom gets to that toxin while it's moving around the body before it binds to a site, it'll neutralize it, boom. So that's a reason to get the antivenom sooner. But this explains why a lot of people, they go to the hospital, and they get the antivenom, but it's, but it's many, many hours after the bite because they had no symptoms other than minor swelling and pain, and they end up on a respirator. It's because the antivenom wasn't given soon enough. And with a smaller kid, it's, it's, it's magnified because the body, uh, the yeah, size of the body. Yeah, it's a much body. smaller system. Yeah. Now, now, this brings up a point that we know the phospholipase A2 in eastern coral is the toxic takedown that shuts the diaphragm off. Mm-hmm. The toxic, the toxic venom component in the, in a coral snake from Texas is a three-finger toxin. Hmm. So uh, <clears throat> Wyeth never really neutralized that, uh, that venom well, but because it's way less toxic, it works. Uh, it's not a perfect fit, but it, but it does work. Uh, but anyway, uh, that's the story on the two uh, the two venoms and, and what we know today that we didn't know six, seven years ago. Yeah, and there was a video, this is something I wanted to ask you about too, because there was a video that Al Quartz did years ago, and he was talking about with Fulvius bites that it wasn't uncommon for people have to, to, to need, like their body had to relearn how to do some things post-bite. I don't know if there's well, any validity to that or not. Um that that has probably happened uh, occasionally. It's not a common effect. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, there. It's a strange thing. If you look at when a dog or cat gets bit by an eastern coral snake, the first symptom we see about seventy-five to eighty percent of the time is the rear legs go down. They'll yeah. drag one leg. They'll drag another I've leg, and then and then the diaphragm shuts down, and the animal dies. Uh, in a human. It doesn't affect your limbs like that. It affects the the bulbar area of uh, the first thing that goes are the the, uh, the the gaps that control your droop, your eyelids, mm-hmm. your speech, your swallowing, excessive salivation. Those come on first. I don't know of anybody. Uh, now they they can stay droopy eyelided and they can have those problems for, you know, days to weeks post bite, but it always resolves itself. And it's not, I don't know of anybody personally that's had to go through a lot of rehab for that. Now there's some other neurotoxins that that can be true with, especially some of the Australian stuff, Mm -hmm. but not so much the coral snake, even though it has those three finger toxins in it. They're such small quantities that they, that, that they don't do the damage. It, that uh, I mean, man, some of the crates and some of the uh, the Australian stuff. Oh my God! I mean, the the neurotoxicity of that can definitely cause some damage. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and it's you know it's funny because talking about Pfizer and sort of the anti venom, um, you know, the, we heard that they were they were getting rid of it. They weren't making it anymore. And I always assumed that was just from like a business standpoint. Like these bites don't happen often, so why are we going to pile all this money into all these snakes to get a little bit of a result from it? You know, a little bit of venom for all the work that gets put in. Uh, but now I guess that's that's not necessarily the case. Like, is it's that not. It's reason? no, no. It's not. It's not the case. Uh, well, let me say this. That that is the case. I don't know the business model on coral snake antivenom. 
uh, is not real, not a good one. Uh, when you compare it to, you know, the Viperidae, Crotalidae, uh, yeah. that, uh, that are, you know, seven, eight, nine thousand bites a year, um, you know, it's usually seven to eight. We, I think the last year or two, we might see it might get up to nine. We'd have a lot of copperhead bites here mm. in the last year or two. But um, here's the other thing you can look at, and that I think Pfizer stepped up to this plate for other reasons. Maybe at the maybe at the request of the FDA. Uh, even though coral snake bite is what we call it's an orphan disease because it affects so few people. Uh, there's no reason to put kids on respirators uh, when you don't have to. If you get this antivenom right after the bite within an hour or two, you're probably going to go home the next day. They probably won't release you, but you could mm -hmm. because, you know, the, the only other thing we know is that those fangs are so small and the venom is injected uh, subcutaneously and it can lay in the subcutaneous tissues for a long period of time before it's absorbed. Mm -hmm. And there, that, then, you know, that's something you have to be aware of when you're treating too. Um, you know, so uh, it, it's a delicate bite to treat. And if you if you look at, fortunately, like I said, 40, 50% of the cases end very well, whether they have antivenom or not. Uh, and the reason they didn't get it, antivenom wasn't because they didn't think it was needed. It's because the doctor or hospital didn't know what they were doing and they didn't <laughs> use it. Uh, and, and by the way, that's still a big problem. Oh, yeah. Uh, but but on, on, on behalf of the doctors, when you, you get these ER physicians, you know, that treat snake bite one one hundredth of a tenth of a second of their life, it's such a small thing that they hardly ever do unless they're in an area that gets a lot of bites mm -hmm. that, you know, they're not going to be tuned up on it. So uh, it's just it's, it's a problem, but it, it exists today, and I hear about it all the time. Um, now, did, were you around, because I remember uh, in the Venom Interviews documentary, I think it was, uh, was it Denise that used to work with Carl? Yes. And she was gardening, and she got bit by that coral, and she went to the hospital, and then they released her. And then I think it was, like, what, the following day that she started getting symptoms, and so she went back it, to the hospital? Yes, I was on the phone with Carl quite a bit with that one. But, I mean, that's a prime example of people get bit. That's a prime <laughs> example. Uh, and let me tell you, she exhibited... Uh, that little myotoxin in there, uh, she actually had, uh, i got to watch the HIPAA rules here, but you know, there, there was some uh, blood to urine, which was an indication. Uh, mm -hmm. she, got, she got a pretty good dose. So, uh, But, you know, th that, that is a typical case. Yeah. Uh, but she that's just... why they always say they, they want to keep you in there for observation. Uh, that's not the norm, but it happens. Yeah. Because she was talking about it, and she said, you know, I was gardening, and she saw it, but she didn't think she got bit, and so she, she kind of wasn't sure exactly, but she went and got it checked out anyways, and then the doctor was like, yeah, never mind, come back tomorrow, you're fine. And then it was the next day that she was actually feeling symptomatic, so she yeah, she actually yeah. went back. And she had, in yeah, fact, she, been bit, so. Yeah, she ended up with two rounds of antivenom. Yeah. That's just, that's crazy, and that's the thing we hear the most, especially here in, like, South Carolina. Everyone has this notion that uh, you know, coral snakes really have to chew on you to to be able to. No, let me inject. let me address that. Yeah, if, please if you, do. I, I, I don't know if you've seen. You know, I've had so many people come take videos. I don't know what they put on there or not, but ninety nine percent of the coral snakes, when they bite the bile, they inject the, the full load of venom immediately. Boom. Mm -hmm. They do chew and they hang on, 
and probably you'll get a little more because you can take that coral snake and put him down for 15 minutes and pick him up and do him again and you'll get a little bit more. Uh, but their bowels are so tender it causes blood on the dam on the bile, so we don't ever do that. And I don't ever squeeze the glands. I let them just yield whatever they want to. Mm -hmm. And you can actually see those muscles over top of the glands just yeah, shrink just those glands down yeah. for us. Uh, they do not have to chew. Uh, they also, uh, some, some observations over the, the 10 or 15,000 handles that I've done here since we started this project, uh, if one fang misses the bile, then it doesn't come out of that fang. It only comes out of the one that did the penetration. They can independently control wow. it from either fang. Uh, I did not the know other that. Thing we see, the other thing we see is uh, they go through a phase, and it's not associated with shedding, because, you know, when snakes shed, they'll shed their fangs, they'll shed the tips of their tongue, they shed, you know. And at that point, you could uh, probably expect that, that the coral would be shedding fangs. And they do. That does happen. And you'll see a fang get stuck in the top of the bile on the damn material. you got to pull it out with tweezers. But there's also something that goes on with these snakes that periodically they have no fangs. And they bite the bile and they slide right off the top of it. <laughs> And it's not because they just shed or they're going in to shed. And uh, I, I don't, I know one time at Bill Haas, we were, we were using injectable tetracycline as a broad spectrum prophylactic antibiotic on a bunch of snakes that we got in rhodostomas because they come in just all messed up mm -hmm. and they all lost their fangs. And, and, because, and of course, then, then they found out in the 70s that tetracycline can yellow kids' teeth too. So, uh, but, but it, it's, it's not because of the diet, and it's not because, because the three of us, we have a little bit different diets. We all see this no thing thing. It's not all the time. I can tell you that uh, out of every 21 days, I do them all. So about every third time, I'll have one or two that will slide off the bottom. That, that's, that's, that's how much of this happens. Huh. So, so, you know, so some of those could be bites, too, where people get bitten and, you know. Yeah, I guess that's yeah. entirely possible. Yeah. But I'll tell you what I'm, uh, I've been doing for a year, and I'm, I'm, I'm probably going to have this data available in another three or four months. <clears throat> I've separated a group of 50 coral snakes, and I, I am measuring the amount of venom these coral snakes uh, on the average yield in the summer months through the winter months. Uh, through, and I'm going to be able to put this data together on 50 snakes instead of one or two and come up with a average venom yield. Mm -hmm. And then the next step is to take maybe three snakes of three varying sizes, maybe a smaller 70-gram snake, and then an average 100-gram uh, snake, uh, that's about a 24-inch on the average. And then a, a big 200-gram snake or 180-gram snake. Uh, and do maybe 10 extractions on each one of those snakes and measure the venom and weigh it out and see what the average venom yield is for that snake for that size and compare it to the average venom yield of 50 and see if there's any correlation of venom yield to body weight. Mm -hmm. 
And the only reason that might make a difference is uh, if you look in all of the history and all of the data that's there now, they want to say that the average venom yield is six to eight milligrams. Now, I can tell you right now from my initial studies that I'm seeing that that's about half wrong. It, they, they give way more than that. Hmm. So what that could mean is if you look at the... Um, if you look at the package insert on coral snake antivenom, uh, it, everybody basically is going with give four vials, you know, right off the bat. And with what I'm seeing here, uh, if somebody comes in with edema and a lot of pain and it's a definite bite, I think I think that could indicate that it might be better to do eight vials. Yeah, I mean, you're better safe than sorry. Yeah, yeah, uh, because what's going to happen is uh, that would reduce the chance of intubation drastically if you gave enough mm -hmm. antivenom initially to cover everything that was in there. Because if you don't give enough and you don't neutralize all of it right up front, you're going to end into that presynaptic binding, and then you, that person could end up on a respirator because he, did, he didn't get enough antivenom initially. And how long, on average, would someone have to stay on a respirator if that were the case? Uh, I, I've seen case histories from three days to two weeks. Wow. Yep. That's. I mean, they're, hey, it's just—it's funny to me that they're just—they're so small and well, not necessarily small, but they're so shy and sort of unassuming. But oh, they man, when they, <laughs> when yeah, when you mess with them, they—they they let you know. They let you know. Yeah, they got a, they got a very toxic uh, component there that they can deliver. But I'll tell you what, the, the Easterns are gentle. They're little, they're tiny little gentle cobras. I mean, they're just mm -hmm. they're the greatest little animal. But mm -hmm. you know, I think one of your your one of you were thinking, well, you know, what do I like best and what do I like least about the coral snake? There's nothing I can tell you I like the least about them. Uh, I even put up with the. Uh, the elapid uh, metabolism that causes a lot of defecation. Yeah. They're, small. they're small, so the colubrid effect. You know, yeah. yeah, yeah, they're not painting it. They're not painting the cages with it, but they're just. Uh, they got little personalities. Uh, they're really. I, I, they're great little animals. They're just, mm -hmm. uh, and I've seen a bunch of them. You know, some of the observations of, of a lot of these coming in. I've got them in with weed eater wax, where I had to remove ribs, uh, and they did well. Uh, I've got them where the tails were cut off. I've got all kinds of mechanical injuries. And if it, there's no internal injuries, they do well. One thing that really surprised me, I got one that had a laceration on its neck. And it actually lost uh, a lot of skin. And uh, I, I sutured back uh, the deep part of the wound, but it left uh, a really big area on the neck uh, that took up almost a whole band of, of, uh, of, of red. Mm -hmm. and it healed up and it turned white sort of like scar tissue Yeah. and in about six months the red came back hmm. the color came back into that wound which was wow. uh, that only That's happened strange. one time yeah, yeah the, the, the one guy I got a 47 and 3 quarter inch big female and she missing three ribs from a weed eater injury her white scar which is on her side it, it stayed white uh that's a big coral. Yeah. Where did, no, that, Harley, where, where did, did you say a 47-inch coral snake? 
47 and it's it's close to 48 inches yeah oh my god like the ones i've seen here they were that's huge maybe two and a half the biggest i've seen is maybe two yeah well not only is it huge lengthwise this is no exaggeration it is a diameter of a broom handle it looks like a red rat it's snake. Like a freaking <laughs> snake. No yeah. way, man. Oh yeah, yeah. Oh my god. I, I, I need to. I need to get some good photographs of that where people could delineate the size in the picture because when people see it in person, they just fall over. What's? And, I mean, what? How old gosh. do you think that animal is? Like, how long have you? That's had it? well. Listen, that snake was forty-seven inches when I got it five oh. years ago. Um, and I'm, 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 you know, I don't know. I, I can tell you that. The longest I've had coral snakes uh, on the venom line uh, is nine years, uh, eight years, mm-hmm. eight years now. That's the longest I've ever had them. And I mean, at what point do you decide to retire one? Like, when do you know that it's uh, it's time as a as on well, the line as is? is... When it dies. No, I well, mean, there's... well, yeah. Here's what happens. Uh, I got a couple three there that are old 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 fellas now, and what happens is they start to lose a little bit of weight. Uh, just, I mean, and it, it, it happens over about an 18 month period. They'll just, and you can go ahead and, uh, like, again, I said, I got a state lab here. That's really great for me. They do fecals for five bucks. They, uh, they can do it so cheap and easy and they're good at it. I don't even have to do any fecals mm-hmm. myself. Uh, check them for worms and parasites. And, you know, I can do blood work. I can do histology. I can do viral stuff. I can do paramyxos. And, and that's never the case. Uh, I will tell you, almost all coral snakes have salmonella. That's just a common gut bacteria with them. And uh, yeah, because I would figure, being snake eaters, they probably adopt a lot of hitchhikers. At, they, they, yeah, they, they do. Uh, but um, it's it's never a problem. Uh, you know, they do fine with it. And, um, there's been a couple that that did go downhill quick. Uh, and they were full of hookworms and roundworms, and they, they had you mm-hmm. know, some of that. And then the salmonella count went up. Uh, but, you know, we don't ever treat salmonella. We just – the fortunate thing for us is even though that might affect our appetite when you're tubing them, they, they're going to get food, and, and they keep it down. So they, they can build their body weight back, and the salmonella gets under control relatively mm-hmm. quick. That's interesting. Yeah. I, there's, man, I'm, there's a lot I did not know. Yeah. <laughs> like I love coral snakes, man. We we live where where I live in particular is on an island in South Carolina, uh, right? That supposedly has one of the biggest populations in the state. Wow, just, I haven't seen one a live one in several years. They're just so seclusive, man. I mean, they're around. Like occasionally yeah. you'll see one hit on the road, yeah. but they I just found a they stay hidden. Yeah, they're, and uh, just finding one, man. Every time it's like. You just stop for a second. It's like, holy crap, what is that? It's and like Christmas. Like, oh, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I mean, it's just, and then watching them move, like I feel like the banding makes them look like they're moving faster than they are. Yeah. Have you ever oh, seen one move? Yeah. Like if for some reason when they go, it feels like they're moving at like a racer pace. But yeah. I think it's really just that color, just the bands just make it. Hey, hey, make no mistake though. They can move out. Oh, you, oh you yeah. You get them on a, on a gravel road where they got a little bit of traction. Oh, yeah. And they long. take off. You're you're probably gonna lose it, and if they're in grass, you ain't gonna catch that yeah, snake. It's, it's gonna get away. <laughs> yeah. Jeez, man. You, you know, uh, like I said, they got personalities. Uh, they're like people. Um, I've got some that will grow to a certain length, 
and then they stop growing, and then all they do is they start getting fat, and I actually got to cut back the formula because I don't want them too fat. <laughs> mm-hmm. uh, so you can't just keep feeding, feeding, feeding uh, a coral snake to get it long. Mm-hmm. Uh, you'll get it big and fat. Uh, they got to have the genetics for the length, and I just bred this 48, uh, this 47 and three-quarter inch snake, female with a big male, and they copulated, and I got it on film. They copulated, and it, but it didn't take, unfortunately. Because oh. I was, I was going to try to take those babies and see if genetically I could come up with mm-hmm. a, a larger version or larger genetic, uh, you know, type of coral snake for the venom line. Because if you if you get a big one, you don't have to have five little ones. Super <laughs> super snake. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. What's the? Uh, have you? I mean, have you bred them before? Oh yeah. Uh, they breed pretty good. Uh, they don't have to worry put, about cannibalism or anything like that, like king snakes? I, I've never had a cannibal. Let me tell you, uh, here in Florida, my critical disaster plan is when when a hurricane Category 3 or above hits, or above a Category 3, I've got to bring all these snakes in the lab into the concrete block house mm-hmm. because the lab is a steel building, and it's only, it's only uh, engineered design for 125-mile-an-hour winds. So if it's a, if it's a not a local snake and exotic, it's got to be double bagged and put in a plastic container or a wooden box yeah. in the house. The coral snakes, because they're local, I don't have to do that. So I uh, I put them. I got these big boxes, about 24 by 18, and I decided, uh, you know, I, you can tell them apart. They I got pictures and they're like fingerprints. So I the first hurricane, I put 10 in each box. And I filled it full of uh, a good bedding material so they could burrow real quick. And I figured, you know, if I got cannibalism, I do. But I, it's better than that than to have lose them all. Yeah. If, if the building blows. Well, man, they were a nervous wreck. And I got them in the house and, and cooled them down because uh, I got a generator. And that worked okay. But it was a pain in the butt separating them back. So the last storm we had, I had to do it, and I only put five to a box, and they did very well. Uh, and I've never had cannibalism like that. I've heard they're cannibalistic, but I've never seen it in my colony. Uh, I've never seen it putting them together. Now, of course, they're all well-fed, of course, so they're mm-hmm. good that way. They're not hungry. Um, but I, I don't I don't know that it's a problem. But uh, Well, I but, guess but, from like a like a evolution standpoint, to eat your own kind is kind of counterintuitive to you being there in the first place. Yeah, true. (laughs) If you just eat Uh, each other, you don't exist anymore. (laughs) Now, you know, we've got a few that are high strung. uh, I swear they got neurological symptoms of something, but uh, their attention deficit, uh, you put them down (laughs) on the kitchen table and they jump around. They, they, they won't stay still. They, uh, even if, even if you pick them out very gentle and you don't get them excited, you can put them on a kitchen table. We don't pin them because if you pin the coral snakes, you're going to kill it. It's going to ruin it bad. Mm-hmm. You got to just make a fast grab and make sure you grab right. You don't grab it by the eyes or and get fangs in your thumbs. And you don't want to grab it too far back and let them turn around. Because like I said, until you restrain them, they're not going to bite you. But when you grab them, they're going to, they're going to, they're going to bite you. So <clears throat> some of you can lay down and do that, but others go spastic. And that's just the, the, the word I use is spastic. Mm-hmm. I think so that's what an I accurate, have to do, accurate description I, of the ones yeah. I found. What I have to do with them is I got a, I got a plastic tube about three-quarter inch in diameter, and it's about 30 inches long. 
and I put a towel around it and I put it to the back of the wall of the kitchen table and and they go for the to get under the towel and then yeah. they'll get in the tube and then I can back them out of the tube and save a lot a lot of time and it's easier on the animal. Uh, so that's the way we catch the spastic ones, if you will. Uh, but but the other problem with that is if when you're pulling them out of the tube and they're going in, you're good. The minute they try to come back quick, you're going to end up with that snake in the palm of your hand in a heartbeat. Uh, mm. So you you got to pull them out with both hands very slow uh, and then wedge the t end of the tube against the, the table so it's got a backstop. Uh, but that's the, way, that's the way we catch those without, you know, and those, by the way, man, when they bite, they 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 give it all a go. Yes, I can imagine, especially in that uh, that scenario, you know, being yeah. being stressed yeah. out and trying to be, you know, restrained. I, I'd imagine if they uh, if they laid into you, they'd uh, give you everything they got. Well, they're pretty light sensitive too, right? Like they're kind of like crates, like they can't dilate their pupils, right? Well, let me tell you. Uh, I do them in a day, but there's been a time or two where I got real busy and I went out like at eight or nine. Eight or nine o'clock at night to do them. No more. They're different. They're different animals at night. Uh, they're more in tune. Uh, uh, I think what happens is because it's dark and you go in the lab and you turn the lights on, they're already they've been moving and they're awake and they're crawling right. and they're doing their thing. And now you're trying to get them. Where in the daytime you go in there and you open it up and they'll be laying there very calm and peaceful and you can just you know lift them out easy with, with a hook or a finger and, and just like put them on a kitchen table and mm -hmm. they don't even try to move much. Uh, so yeah, they're, they're, they're pretty uh, active at night uh, in the darkness. Cause I've heard that but about you, crates, like crates are during the day, they're fine, but at night they're just, they're absolute monsters. But, but you know what, if you, if I look at my records and most, and I say most, I'm going to, I'm going to, I'm going to throw out about an 80% plus number of the ones that we go get from people, the people have, they found them early morning or late evening, like, you know, uh, right after the sun comes up or, or you know, at dusk. They, that's when they saw them moving, uh, and that seems to be their activity level. And I'm going to tell you that we get them all year long, not just in the summer. We will get a little more in the summer months, but January... December, March, uh, yeah, they're 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 here, all, they're active all year. Yeah, the first year. one I found, it's kind of ironic because we had just this house was being built. Me and my mom were on our way out to ch check it out to see where they were at with it, and it was like November, like mid November. Right. Yep. And I was talking about how cool it would be to see a coral snake because I knew they were down here. We'd just come from uh, Virginia, um. And we went out walking around the woods, just checking out the property, and sure enough, we found a coral. And I mean, I was amazed because it was actually pretty cool that day. It was probably upper fifties, mm -hmm. and that coral wow. snake was still hanging out, like still hanging out. Yep, yep. Moved just as fast as if it had been eighty, you know. <laughs> yeah, they do. <laughs> so I That's thought that crazy. was really interesting to find one that late in the year. Yeah. Some of the other observations uh, from getting a lot of quantity in is only twice have I got coral snakes that had ticks. Uh, and I've never received a coral snake from the wild with mites, ever. Wow. Uh, well, just some things you kind of look for when you get them. You know? Yeah. Uh, now, I have had, uh, back to breeding, let, let me give you, uh, when I say they're easy to breed, uh, 
that's probably not an accurate statement because I'm talking about a large number. But what I would do is I would pair up 10, uh, 10 males, 10 females, mm-hmm. and pair them up. And the two or three years when I was trying to breed them, when we didn't have enough, uh, we didn't, you know, we were trying to proliferate our collection, the colony. <clears throat> Out of putting 10 together, two. Maybe maybe you get two that would uh, that would that would work. You just so, think it's so, like a compatibility thing? Well, you know, I, I didn't put cameras on them. I didn't watch them. I don't know if they all copulated or if they didn't. Uh, I never put. I never did. You know, like when we when we pair up rattlesnakes, especially like white specks, mm-hmm. we'll we'll get a big a big cage and, and maybe get three females and and maybe four or five males and have more males and females and the males will calm that. And yeah. That stimulates, maybe that stimulates stuff. And uh, we've done that, also done that with Eastern and Western diamondbacks in, in the albino phase of it. And that works good. But uh, the coral snakes, I just paired one male, one female. So if you use that percentage, it's like about, uh, what I could say is 20% of what I paired of were, of were, were, viable, were viable, so. And they're small clutches. Uh, the bigger, the biggest clutch I've had was eight. Oh, the wow. average, the, uh, the yeah, the average clutch uh, is is four to five. Hmm. Hmm. And what's the typical and, uh, like gestation period for them? Is it kind of standard uh, to most other snakes pretty, in the area? Pretty much, uh, just about like the the uh, the kuku that we did a lot of breeding, uh, 50, 50 to sixty five days. Depending on, you know, I don't have an incubator. Mm-hmm. Uh, what I do is I, I set them up uh, and, and, and I put, um, put them in, in the container. Uh, I set them up, put them in an ice chest uh, with two one-gallon uh, containers of water in, in the ice chest and with just two holes in each side. What that does is, is the variation of the lab uh, can be as much as five to seven degrees in, 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 in the months when we're doing that. And with that water in there, it keeps, uh, I keep a little deal, a little uh, temperature thing there where I can see it. You know, it, I, I can go back and see the high-low. Mm-hmm. Uh, it keeps it very stable. And, and, and in the summer, and that's at about 84 uh, is the ambient. But when I put it high in the lab, I can get it like at 86 degrees. And, that, and that's that's taking the 55 to 60 days. I think if you could maybe get them 88, maybe uh, you. I don't. I don't know. You know, I, I, that one I'd have to experiment with. You might be able to get them to uh, hatch a little quicker. But but, but they're no trouble. Uh, they well, they all all the eggs uh, when they're when they're fertile are good. They're easy to incubate. Mm-hmm. They're no trouble at all. And what the hell do you feed the babies so being that small? Babies. Yeah, oh, I mean, so cute. You... And very brilliant in color. Oh my gosh! What do you even? What do you feed those when they're that small? Well, well you 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 painstakingly tube them with. Uh, actually, it's a nasal gastric tube that they put down for infants in the nose. And the problem with that is the formula has got to be so darn thin or it won't pass yeah, through it. Yeah, it'd be too thick. Now, what you can do if you if you're gonna do it yourself, and uh, you can go get animals, and you can. Uh, put the tails in there, they'll eat the little wiggly tails. Because, uh, I mean, we're talking about you, something with the diameter of, like, a bamboo skewer. Oh, man, I'm telling you. I mean, if you could, if you could find 
newborn ringnecks. That that might be a good food. And, and, and you know they eat these blind snakes. The blind snakes we have in Florida. Yeah, yeah, you know, yeah. Uh-huh. If, if you can get a supply of them, that is the best coral snake food you can get. It's about the only thing they can eat at that size on their own. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> oh, hey, I tried uh, I tried uh, red ant, uh, bull ant larvae. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, you know, and I set a camera up, and man, they come out and they look at it and they tongue it and they move it at night, and I'm thinking, I'm going to hit something here. Yeah, and I could never get a knee. What the hell is this? Yeah. (laughs) But we are approaching our hour and a half mark, but there is one question that I had that I thought of early on, given all your time with all these different hots. What is your least favorite species that you've had to milk over the years? Like, what's the one group or species that every time you have to milk it, you're like, damn Damn it. it. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Why? Why these? Well, <clears throat> dig deep. I've only done a few of these, and I don't care to ever do them again. And that would be the Atrophaspus. <laughs> oh, oh yeah. Uh, oh, yeah. I would have figured it would have been Bothrops or something like that, but that makes sense. Well, uh, a big Bothrops is uh, will get your adrenaline going. Uh, but. W- w- I'm going to tell you something that what I've had to do uh, when I was younger, uh, that's when you make all your mistakes. You know, you, <clears throat> in the sixties, I, I wanted to be like Bill Haas. Uh, we free handled, uh, <clears throat> we got a lot of bites. Mm-hmm. Uh, thank goodness. My dad was a letter carrier and post office mailman have good insurance. Uh, <laughs> I, I even went through, I even went through a period. Uh, where I immunized myself against a, a quite a variety of snakes, uh, and that that probably got me through two of the cobra bites. But but you know then Anna then it became available. Uh, you know in the early '60s and the mid '60s, you you hardly couldn't get antivenom. Uh, you just couldn't get it for exotics. And so a- anyway, uh, believe it or not, back in those days when I was doing a lot of both rops. Uh, Probably the worst snake to really grab at that point in those days was cantiles. Really? Uh, oh, they're horrible. They were. I mean, it's so easy to get a fang in your thumb with those guys. Mm-hmm. Uh, they're just they're just explode. Uh, in the last twenty years, uh, particularly if I go back into this area that I'm in now, where I'm doing it full time and retired, <clears throat> my wrists are not great. Uh, in fact, after doing all of those snakes in a row, and you do a hundred of them in a day, and then in five days you do them again in ten days, I got I got carpal tunnel. I had to have surgery. Oof. So if you look at my videos, I I I built a caulking gun out of a Ryobi caulking gun, an electric caulking gun, so I don't have to squeeze. But consequently, it's left my wrist to where I can't. I I won't do a, a big Diamondback or a big Bothrops. Mm-hmm. I, I just can't. Uh, physically can't can't I don't have the strength in the wrist to control it and it's not I'm sure I could control it but what's going to happen is I'm going to I'm going to I'm going to squeeze it I'm going to hurt the snake really bad yeah uh, because out of, out, out, out of fear of losing control of it you're going to squeeze tighter <laughs> so, uh, yeah, and, yeah. and you know and that's a Strangle. that's a thing with coral snakes you've got to be firm but you got to be gentle they're not they're not indestructible and you got to put the catheter in slow. You got you got to make sure you're not tearing something. If you go too fast, you'll 
you'll go right in a lung and kill it. It'll mm-hmm. die and it'll die that night. Uh, you got to use your little pinky to kind of put pressure uh, on the stomach uh, to so the, the catheter is flowing both ways because it's not a hole in the end; it's a hole on the side, oh, and you yeah. don't want the food coming backwards. And, uh, mm-hmm. and and when you grab a coral, your little pinky sometimes is right where the heart is, and if you start to, if you get it. To a point where you feel that little heartbeat, you got to move your pinky, and uh, it's a deal where if if you too gentle, they'll spin in your hand, and if you're if you're too hard and squeeze them too tight, pushing the catheter down when you're holding the snake tight, it'll rip the esophagus. Yeah. Uh, there's a lot of, and let me tell you, you when you start out doing this. Uh, you do two or three here or there, you kind of don't get a feel for that. You really get a feel for that when you're doing them, you know, about eight hours and you've gone through about a hundred of them. You've had had a lot of time to improve the technique. (laughs) A lot of time to improve the technique. And and you know what? Uh, I've had another young gentleman that got in the business, and I, I told him, I said, look, you look at what we do. And you can start with that, but don't 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 take it that that's the only way. Think out of the box. You mm-hmm. can always come up with a better way uh, of doing something. And uh, you know, necessity is a mother of invention. I mean, it's uh, we're talking about little things like something as simple as putting uh, the dam material over a 15 milliliter syringe, uh, test tube. You know, there's you, you do it. You put a rubber band on it. You pull it. You pull it. You hold it. You pull it. You know, I'm doing this, I'm killing myself, and, and one day I just, I, I don't know what. I just said, you know, I put the damn material over top of the test tube. This is a 15 milliliter, just standard tube. And then I turned it upside down, and I pushed it into the, the screw cap. Mm-hmm. And, and what that does is it pulls the damn material tight, and then you can put your rubber band around the bottom of the screw cap, and then pop the screw cap off, and, and you've taken a 10-minute nightmare, oh, yeah. and you've done it. Now you do it in 30 seconds, and mm-hmm. it's beautiful. And and I don't know. It just happened. Uh, and there's all, all kinds of little things like that. I tell everybody, you know, you you can start with the way you see people doing it and learn it, but don't don't stop there. Keep your mind going. You'll come up with a better way, a better formula, a better catheter, a better syringe. Mm-hmm. Um well, that's it. Never stop improving. Yeah, it's Never like stop lows, the lows slowly. We, yeah, it's something we uh, we we talk about a lot on here. You know, you do little things within reason to you know you're in your collection. Make life easier. Yeah, to make life easier, and then overall, you know, it better's the hobby. You know, every little bit counts. You know, any any little thing that can help somebody else is better for the entire community. You know. Well, you, you know, I want to I want to close with one one comment I want to share with the, with the herp the herp group. Do it. Uh, yeah, on social media, you know, I'm I'm 70 years old. I've been doing this for 54 years, and I'm going to tell you, I hate to see people come down on other people. I mean, uh, uh, even even if they're doing something wrong that you don't agree with, uh, I think it's better. You know, uh, we all made those mistakes and did those same things mm-hmm. when we were young. And, and I think we need to try to turn into a hobby or a culture that helps people, uh, even in a world where we're, you know, there's very few venom production folks. Uh, there's only three or four of us in the United States that have contracts with anti-venom producers. And 
we don't really look upon each other as competition. We got to get along. We help each other, uh, you know, uh, and it's, uh, we do things different. If you looked at all, if you looked at the people that do it, you'll see their techniques are different. It doesn't mean one person is better than the other or knows the right way. It's what works for that person. So I'd like people to adopt that same thing on social media and quit nailing everybody that's doing something wrong. I mean, try to help them. Uh, yeah. just make, make it a make a make a positive comment, mm-hmm. and uh, I just uh, I, I wish I wish that would kind of take hold. But I, I I'm sitting here watching. I'm not seeing it yet. It's the internet. I think and it only gets worse as we go. We're, we're trying. We go. We're definitely trying to help push push yeah. people towards that. Yeah. But uh, yeah. we definitely appreciate you coming on. Yeah, man. Um, if anyone mm. wants to stay up to date as far as what agrotoxins is doing, where can they find it? Uh, they can find it on Facebook. Uh, they can email me uh, at jfacente. That's one word, J-F-A-C-E-N-T-E, at EmbarkMail, one word, and it's E-M-B-A-R-Q-M-A-I-L.com. And if you go on uh, my Facebook uh, site, Jack Vicente, my, all my phone number and email and everything is there. It's all open. Cool. Uh, the only awesome. thing... The only thing that I've not shared completely is the complete formula, and, right. and I'm basically I'm doing that uh, out of out of uh, respect for my two partners because uh, we worked hard to get where we are, mm-hmm. and that, that's kind of the key to our success. And we're we're going to hang on to that for a while. Mm-hmm. I, I will help anybody individually. Um, I can give them some several different formulas that they can do that w- will work well for them. Uh, if they want to keep snakes, you know, and breed them. Uh, and I'd be glad to do that. Awesome. Yeah, this is a great episode. Yeah. I have to admit, I've been wanting Packed to have full. you on for a long time. Yeah, You're Justin, one of my white whales. Justin's been man-crushing so, hard I've the past like, couple man, weeks. Man, I so, want to talk uh, coral so bad. <laughs> He's been ready. <clears throat> well, it's been a pleasure to, uh, to be with you guys and spend some time and share some experiences. Yeah, Thank definitely. You. Thank yes, you so much for coming on. We appreciate it. Have a good evening. All right, Jack. Have okay. a good night. All right, you bet. Good night now. Night. Bye-bye. Bye. Zing. I mean, wow. I think that might be one of the best episodes. Yeah, that was, like, that was that was. I knew it would be good, but I didn't know it would be that good. The beautiful thing about that episode is, like, it was so smooth. It wasn't too long. Boy, it wasn't short. Oh man, it wasn't long. It wasn't short. They it, call it me was, Parquet. It was that that perfect sweet spot of length. There's no well, awkward he's like, pauses. He's the perfect. He's the he was perfect great. Guest, he, he was great, he, dude. You ask him a question. He, he, he gives he's, you the he's got the straight up answer. You know, doesn't go off on a bunch of rabbit trails. Bunch of, about a bunch of other shit that doesn't mm-hmm. even apply. You know, like never mind. Well. <laughs> But, um, yeah, we... no, that was that was great. This is episode fifty six. Yeah, it's a good time. Good time. We got to do a one on one next week. Yeah, one on one next week. Done a one on one for the week. So yeah. think of things to bring up for that because we don't know what we're doing when we go into those. It's always just like, what are we talking about tonight? We I have no talk, idea. I record. feel like that's the kind of kind of the fun thing about those episodes. Those we. Just... I mean, I like to have like one thing that might yeah, at least been, one topic, like but... just something I've been thinking about. Okay. And then getting yeah. your thoughts about it, like well, how, something throughout the week. How about if you know we can ask our ask people listening if there's something they want to want to want to want to one on one talk, message us and we'll, we'll Facebook or Instagram. Yeah.
Hit us up. We'll All right, y'all. Thank Be sure you to subscribe for, yeah. via SoundCloud, iTunes. Uh, sorry. SoundCloud, Hop iTunes, Hop. Google Play, Spotify. What were you going to say? I'm sorry. I don't know. I forgot. Um, big shout out to our sponsors. Fishhead Diagnostics. Steve Snakesuary. Two best sponsors in Get the hobby. You you want some hot sauce. It's chili season. It's Get starting to cool off. freaking hot sauce, man. It's starting to cool off. That it means is. it's chili season. You need hot sauce for chili, right? I can just go outside. I can see Justin. Am I not mistaken? Uh, yeah. I'm not a chili eater, so I wouldn't know. I would eat chili, yeah. But you put hot sauce in chili, do you not? I mean, I, I don't. I haven't, but I'm sure people do. I think do. some people do. So if you Around do, here, yeah. <laughs> I don't know how they do it in the the great white north of Green Bay, but... What? Wisconsin. Wisconsin. This in here, bad. Get some Venom Hot Sauces. Steve just, Snakeshore. Just buy the freaking sauce, man. It's good. They are good. It's time. We're going to have one up for auction. It's Carpet Fest. I think we mentioned that last week. Southeast Dude, Carpet Fest is we need happening. A, we need a picture of you like standing outside in the cold like with hot sauce, like holding it Drinking up. Drinking like, it? Nothing keeps me warmer than Steve Snakeshwary hot sauce. And a THP hoodie. Yeah. There it is. Frostbite. <laughs> none to be found. <laughs> you used to be out there in THP hoodie and like American flag boxers. And holding which hot sauce would you hold? The venom sauce, probably the pygmy, just because I like pygmies. I do the coral snake. Oh, yeah, true. Mm. The coral snake, yeah, yeah, or the cottonmouth, which is the one that I think we like the most out of all. I don't of remember, them. strangely, but that was the green was, one. There was, was the, three of them that were really good. Yeah, the green the one would have been good, good on tacos. tacos. That's yeah. the cottonmouth one. We say that every episode, be good on tacos, but good that was the one that I think stuck out the most to me, and that was yeah. the one I honestly didn't think that I would have liked the most out of all. Yeah. Of them. Salsa verde usually look. isn't my thing. Yeah, like green tomatoes usually aren't my thing. Nah. But that stuff. Yeah, it was that solid. and some like that with some make a salsa out of that. Yeah, some pico de gallo. Oh man. And and y'all already know about uh, fish egg diagnostics. Go. Don't hesitate on getting your animals tested. Or if you have any for nidovirus, yes. Or if you have any questions, let us know, and we diseases. will send it to them. But guys, we do just not swapped brats the other day and sent it down to them. Yeah, like, what turns, does this kid got? Turns out I have nido. No, you got more than that. <laughs> <laughs> so freaking funny. Um, but yeah, don't hesitate to get your animals tested, guys. Get a nidovirus test kit. They from will be Fish having Head. some of those up for the auction for Carpet Fest as well. Keep you keep chiming in while I'm, I'm trying to talk, I and mean, it just it frustrates me. It makes me just want to throw this okay. pen through your glasses. I'm sorry. Gosh, you know what? Next road trip, no chilies. Don't do that. Don't yeah, me. yeah. I, that, that's our point. I'll drive separate. Just trying to talk over me. I'm not. I'm Gosh. adding to the to the sentence as it's finishing up. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Dude, gonna, I, I, I really like that gray. There's going to be like nidovirus test kits at the Southeast Carpet Fest auction. Yeah. That all will be up soon. Currently Guys. Trying to work on that. And mark it on the calendars for Southeast Carpet Fest in February. We've already been over the dates. It's February we, 8th. Yes, it's 7th through 9th, but 8th is the 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 day day of. The big day, so be there, be square. Um, Dude, there's a lot, though, dude. We're going to have a lot more people this time, I think. There's there's a lot of people who didn't come last year who are coming. Luke's talking about coming. No way. Yeah. I know um I know Jeff's Jeff's coming, Jeff Opst or Opst. Mm-hmm. I don't know how to pronounce his last name. Jeff, tell me how to pronounce your last name. 
Um, Dominic yeah, DeFalco. He's, he's, coming. he's coming from Ohio. Yeah. Or she's planning to. She wants to. I know. Uh, um, Carly, I think, is talking about it. Yeah, Carly's coming. I spoke to her about that I mean, the other day. Like, yeah. It's awesome. And um, I think Andy um, Middleton yes. is uh, talking he's about, about it too. And bringing a bus. Um, so, yeah, I think we're going to have an awesome turnout. I think it's going to be really freaking awesome. I'm already, I'm so I'm already so, battling I'm already, for the time off. Like, oh, man. If, if I don't get this time off, I'm going to be really upset. Yeah. Like, we're going to have to figure something out. Some of y'all might have to kidnap me. Yeah, I'm going to – I'll fight Raj if I we have both to. Will. Dude, we will throw down. All right. He, he's small and shifty, but I think we could take him. He's quick. I he's got. He's Indian. He's got that – he's oh, got. Yeah. The, he's quick on his feet. I'm pretty quick, Boy, too, He's though. thin. He's tall. He's lanky. He's like he you. Tall. He's not tall. He's tall. About, he's about my size. He's about your height. But I'm just saying, you shorter. smaller guys, man. Right. You guys are you guys are crafty. Yeah, guys can, we're shifty. Yeah. yeah. So that's what I'm saying. Yeah. He gets I, a couple Heinekens him. in him, and he's like the speed of light, dude. <laughs> like me at Carpet Fest. <laughs> yeah. I was in Heineken. Yeah. I was all over the place, man. But yeah, so be there, be square, and if you're not, well, um, never mind. The nearer circle. Yeah. Don't be a, don't be a don't circle. Be a, be a square. Rhombus. Rhombus. Anyways, episode, episode fifty six. Oh my gosh! Why do we oh, keep we doing share a brain? that tonight, dude? We that's like at birth? that's like the third time we've done that crap. Subscribe. All that we already listed off everything yes, overall. So, all right, guys. Jacob Roth, Jabby Morelia. This is Justin Smith with Metal Ghost Exotics. <laughs> Have a good night. It was like I was trying to go through the same door at the same time. <laughs> I had to like stop it. Like, no, you go. Yeah. It's like go walking the same way mm-hmm. and saying bye. Trying to get go. through the same doorway. Like, yeah. We just, we don't fit. See you later. Bye. We did it Yeah.